0: Once again, the D2R Podcast Network Hotline, USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. Call today!
1: This is uh, Jim Fetzer doing a think tank interview at the invitation of Ryan Williams about how to spot a false flag, a sampler of orchestrated events where I'm going to discuss a, a dozen or more examples of false flags and give you the tells, the signs that enable you to discern that what's going on is not as it has been claimed or presented or advertised as being. Among the most important distinctions with which we must begin, however, is the difference between truth and evidence, roughly the difference between correspondence, where where a claim is said to be true when it corresponds to reality, where reality in turn could be described as the totality of the way things are, uh, or where an assertion that something is the case can be said to be true when it is the case and otherwise is false, but where we don't have privileged access to what is true and what is false and therefore must depend upon evidence acquired by observation, measurement, experiment, other sources, which is not always guaranteed to be authentic because we find in many false flag cases that the perpetrators have fabricated evidence with the intent to mislead or conceal or distort the the truth of the matter. So we use the coherence of the evidence, how it all hangs together as a measure of the support for truth and where we can conclude that an hypothesis is true in the tentative and fallible fashion of science meaning that although it's the best supported among the alternatives and the evidence is settled down and we're entitled to accept it as true, it's nevertheless not guaranteed to be true, which is what makes it fallible. and Tentative insofar as the acquisition of new evidence or alternative hypothesis may lead us to have to reject hypotheses, Uh, We previously accepted accept hypotheses. We previously rejected and leave others in suspense. Now, we have a most interesting development vis-a-vis Parkland, the alleged shooting where 17 are supposed to have been killed by one uh, Nicholas uh, Cruz, uh, insofar as Tony Mead has discovered that the uh, 20 most recent obituaries in Parkland, Florida, Uh, reported by Ancestry.com, does not include the names of any of the 20. Now, remember, this was a Valentine's Day shooting, which, of course, was February 14th. But while we have, you know, uh, uh, deaths from a, a wide range of cases, as late as March 7th, there's only one, an Alice Levinson, on February 14th, and she was not among the decedents alleged to have died at Parkland. This is a very peculiar circumstance and raises the question, uh, are there other indications of fakery? Are there other anomalies that cohere with the absence of obituaries for the purported Parkland victims? Is there inconsistent testimony, fake images, contrived scenarios, Political motives for staging the shooting. Are there violations of laws of physics, ballistics, or physiology? Were standard operation, operating procedures followed there or not? Roughly speaking, this gives us the opportunity to assess the question, what is the probability of the available evidence on the hypothesis that the shooting was real versus the probability of the available evidence on the hypothesis that it was fake. Notice already in this particular example, uh, the probability of the absence of obituaries for any of the victims of the Parkland shooting, if it were real, has to be approximately zero. That's most certainly something we would not expect. If we considered a missing obituary for one of these purported victims to have a relatively low probability, uh, what then for two or three or four? Increasingly improbable, because the probabilities are are multiplied together. Just as uh, to have a head on one flip of a coin has a probability of one-half, but on two flips of a coin... Consecutively, only one quarter, three flips of a coin consecutively, only one eighth, and so forth, where the improbability here would appear to approach zero on the hypothesis it's real. But if it was fake, assumes a non zero probability since it appears to be something that they would, they overlook from their checklist of how to conduct a fake or staged event. We'll look at much more evidence regarding Parkland and see how it all falls out. I mentioned that I do collaborative research on all of these issues, which began with my first work on the assassination of JFK back in 1998, where I brought together a world authority on the human brain who is also an expert on wound ballistics, a PhD in physics who is also board certified in radiation oncology, which made him an expert in the interpretation of x-rays, uh, a, 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 a physician who'd been present in trauma room number one when JFK's moribund body was brought in, and then two days later was responsible for the care and treatment of his alleged assassin and many other experts as well, including on, on photos and films. Well, I've continued the same with my uh, resurgent interest in false flag attacks, uh, beginning with Sandy Hook, uh, but continuing to the Boston bombing, uh, Orlando and Dallas, uh, uh, Charlottesville, uh, uh, more recently now Las Vegas and uh, Parkland, uh, all of which will be among the examples we discuss here. But where I want you to be aware that if you want to know more there's a there are a repository of research on each of these events uh at moonrockbooks.com where you can pursue them to your hearts content just to give one illustration uh, the book on sandy hook which is now in its second edition after the first was banned by amazon.com having gone up on the 22nd of october 2015 sold nearly 500 copies before it was banned on 19 November, uh, allegedly for violating the guidelines of Amazon.com, which frankly was simply absurd, but where I brought together 13 experts on Sandy Hook, including six <coughs> current retired PhD uh, professors, uh, where each of us had done a great deal of research, including... Dr. Eilwyn, who had actually published already 80 articles on Sandy Hook, mine, myself, me, myself, 30, uh, so that I was able to take the best of the best. And while we don't claim our research is flawless, that we do make mistakes from time to time The probability that the collective efforts of this research group would be wrong about basic aspects is exceedingly improbable. So just bear that in mind. If you want more substantiation for what I'm going to report here for the illustrations I'm going to use, you can find them at Moonrock Books or in other presentations I have made available on the Internet, though, by and large, no longer on YouTube, which has been conducting a bulldozer approach to taking out the alternative media, precisely because we have blown apart so many of these staged events that the government has been conducting in order to instill fear into the American people to make us more amenable to uh, manipulation in support of uh, uh, its own political agenda, which, by the way is the classic definition of terrorism, acts of violence intended to instill fear into a target population to make it more amenable to support a political agenda where these are acts of faux or faked or staged terrorism, but nevertheless in their emotional impact. They might as well be real, which is one of the hooks, one of the ingenious aspects of how they are designed to have maximal emotional impact upon the target audience. Well, the Boston Bombies is an interesting case to begin because it displayed many anomalies. We had bodies missing arms and legs, but initially there was no blood. The blood only showed up later, and it's fake. Hollywood blood. It came out of tubes, actually out of small orange duffel bags. Here's a, a image of one of the two explosions taking place. As a former artillery officer in the Marine Corps, I believed from the beginning that these were not powerful explosives, but rather were intended for dramatic or theatrical effect. Here you see, peering through the smoke, that yes, there are bodies missing arms and legs, but there is no blood. Take another look. Bodies missing arms and legs, but there is no blood. As Lorraine Day, who is the head of trauma surgery at San Francisco General Hospital for 25 years, has observed, it is a physiological impossibility to have arms and legs blown off by explosives, and for there to be no blood. In other words, we're talking here about a violation of the laws of physiology, which makes it a certainty that what we're witnessing is a fabricated or staged event. The blood, as you can see here, only shows up later, and it's fake blood, Hollywood blood. It remains too bright. It doesn't change color. Notice the contrast with real blood from a bombing in Cairo. What happens is that once the blood is out of the body, it deoxygenates and turns darker. Think about the difference between your arteries and your veins. Arterial blood is bright because it's oxygenated, carrying to the heart, which then depletes the oxygen and pumps the blood back to the capillaries through the veins, which is dark blood, where it's then reoxygenated in the capillaries and begins its route back to the heart, an essential phenomenon for living human beings. But here we have a small duffel bag of which there were five or six in the area when the bodies were cleared away. And since they didn't have uh, actual you know, arms and legs blown off, uh, we have been able to discern what actually took place. For example, we've identified one of the key players who is, was uh, uh, said to be Jeff Bauman, as a victim who's actually Nick Voigt, a former army officer who lost his legs in Kandahar, Afghanistan, with a first striker brigade. In other words, they were using amputee actors. For the purpose of conducting the Boston Marathon and presenting the horrific image of people having their arms and legs blown off, where we've even discovered the actor waiver form that's used by the Department of Homeland Security uh, in order to, you know, secure uh, the participation of various actors. Uh, After the event, food and refreshments will be available. Restaurants will also be available. We'll find that standard at FEMA drills. And typically, they're doing this for pay, not merely for passing the time. We have another anomaly in NICE that's rather fascinating. Broly Damagard, who's an expert on assassins and assassinations and covert events, has actually refined his skills to the point where he's even able to predict some of these events. An 18-wheeler in an area where large trucks are not legally allowed in these allegedly hit 84 persons, and yet there's not a speck of blood on the truck. They actually cut a pig for blood in the street, but the bodies turned out to be mannequins. Here's the general vicinity in Nice that represents a driver's deadly path, and you can see, of course, the location of Nice on the Mediterranean on the map in the lower right for geographical orientation. Here's the more specific location during which this horrific event was supposed to have taken place. Mind you, once again, I mean, the very idea of 84 people being taken out by a monster truck, you know, just has tremendous emotional impact as intended. But when you look at the truck at the bottom, you see no blood on the truck at all. Uh, 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 the truck above had simply hit a single deer, and look how it's smeared with blood. And yet the truck below that is alleged to have taken up 84 people has no blood whatsoever. The question thus becomes, since this indicates it didn't actually hit any human being or other living thing, what was going on? And when we take a close-up, it turns out that they were using mannequins. In fact, I was so fascinated by the images of the use of mannequins, where only did a chapter for me about a multiplicity of these events that I published and from Orlando to Dallas and beyond that I put a photograph of them on the back cover. Parkland anomalies. One of the most striking aspects of the Parkland shooting is the stage classroom event that's presented as though were real, but we have a body lying there with no arms, lying in a pool of fake blood. So we have essentially a merge of the technique from Nice and the technique from Boston combined in Parkland. We have a police officer carrying out a girl with no apparent injuries. We have a girl with an iPod, another worried about her bottled water. In other words, they're doing things you wouldn't expect them to be doing if this were a real event because they'd be quasi-traumatized. Here you see a couple of the key frames from the video, which I'm going to show you in its entirety, where you see the body lying there and the blood. Notice how much it looks like the Hollywood blood from the Boston bombing. It does not look real. Indeed, a policeman actually steps in the blood, walks away, but there's no pattern of blood left in his footprints. And you'll notice, looking carefully, it has no arms, doesn't even appear to have a head. So we got a mannequin in a pool of fake blood. You ask yourself now, what's the probability of having a mannequin with fake blood in a scene from a classroom at Parkland if the event had been real? Versus what's the probability of having a mannequin with no arms or a head in a pool of fake blood if it had been staged? Here is the uh, here is the event. It's less than a minute long. I'll play it and then again with some commentary. Listen to what you hear here. One of my research collaborators has observed that Parkland gave up its police force in 2004 and depends upon the, the sheriffs for protection. So that, well, we see several persons here in police uniforms. They don't have the name Parkland and appear to be actors impersonating police officers. you notice, too, in addition to the girl working on her iPad, And the other, talking about her, worried about her bottled water, we have a kid pulling his pots. We have a police officer carrying out the girl who doesn't appear to have any injuries. It's even been suggested that there's another mannequin in the back of the room. Now, uh, uh, one of these experts has done a minute study frame by frame. So I'm highly confident of what I'm explaining to you here. Let's take one more look. Listen to the crying, which is the best that the girls can do to fake it. (laughs)
2: Let's (laughs) go, (laughs) Let's <laughs> go, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, perhaps the most interesting and telling interview that took place, and there have been many involving the fellow on the right, who, of course, is David Hogg, known worldwide as a spokesman for the anti-gun movement. But far more interesting than Hogg, to whom we shall return, are the remarks of Alison Camerata on the left, 14 years old, who said, it was like a movie set. It looks so real. But it felt so fake. I think Allison has got it spot on. She figured out what happened. We have other Orlando anomalies as uh, 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 an anomalies from Orlando is an obvious case of how it's done. The permit for the Pulse Club had expired three years earlier, uh, leading me to infer that it wasn't even open at the time. It had a legal occupancy of 150. And yet they claim over 300 were alleged to have been packed in where he's supposed to have shot, you know, what, 53 and wounded, uh, you know, a a large number in addition. Uh, We had crisis actors in Orlando who were a bit too obvious, and there was no billing for medical services. The Orlando Emergency Medical Center declared it wasn't going to bill for services rendered. Uh, my inference because there weren't any. Uh, take a look at the club. Okay. It only had 11 parking spaces. Now, what that means is if there had been, uh, you know, 300 packed in there with 11 parking spaces, there ought to have been abandoned cars all over the place, but they weren't there. Uh, in addition, the club actually had eight different exits. So with 50 dead, 50 injured, Uh, You know, they could have escaped many different ways and and not been harmed. Uh, We have now new footage. This is relatively recent, again, from Live League. And what I want to point out about this footage is, while it's supposed to include the shooter uh, in the club and uh, some dancing going on, that, that the dancers have much too much room to move around and dance, implying the club was not packed full in excess of 150. And the images of the purported shooter, like those of the dancers in the club, have no date-time stamps. In other words, this video, like others we're looking at, appears to be a fabrication. Now, here there is a, a date-time stamp, uh, but there's nothing interesting going on here. Here we have the dancers, and you notice how roomy it is. You can find this video, by the way, online too, because I know, but you can see from the movement. Because of the pixelation, it's hard to see. Now, this is some outside footage of no particular interest, and it could have been taken almost anywhere at almost any time. Though it does have a date-time stamp attached to it. Uh, But it it appears to be filler to stretch out the amount or length of the recording. Uh, When you come to the shooter here, this is supposed to be the shooter. Where are the bodies? Where are the bodies? And there's no date-time stamp there. Now, these are police officers who are supposed to be in the club investigating. And while there is a date-time stamp, Again, where are the bodies? The fact is, there appear to have been no bodies, which is precisely why the Orlando Emergency Medical Center declared that it wasn't going to bill for services rendered. I mean, when's the last time you heard of a hospital not billing for a band-aid? All right? So we have this uh, very odd video, but not completely unlike. Where are even the cars here? Where are even the cars? Where are even the cars? You can't have 300 people packed in there and have no cars. So I conclude this is just a nice piece of fabrication that's intended to, you know, mislead the unwary who haven't developed their critical skills to assess what's going on in cases of this kind. We had uh, also an array of very poor crisis actors. I mean, these guys were jokes when it came to pretending to be, uh, you know, among those who had been at the club and escorting the wounded. Uh, People who are wounded shouldn't be carried around. Some were being tossed in the back of pickup trucks. That's not what you do with someone who's wounded. You're not a medical professional. You leave them in place. You may be aggravating their injuries, even causing their death. This particular group here, when they got out of what they thought was the vision of the camera, they put down this guy they were carrying who danced a little jig because they thought they'd done so well. Notice, by the way, they're carrying the purported victim toward the Pulse Club, not away from it, which, of course, is odd in and of itself. We have the Orlando nightclub shooter's father, turned out to be an FBI informant, brushed off his son's terror arguments. Uh, terror comments, an agent said, the Orlando nightclub shooter's dad, revealed to be an FBI informant, told authorities who were investigating Omar Mateen before the attack that pro-terror comments would be gunman made to co-workers were just examples of him being stupid, an agent testified on Monday. Well, there's lots to be learned about crisis actors, but no one has done quite such a brilliant job as Harrison Hanks, who actually features real crisis actors from Orlando. So take a look at this. Runs a couple minutes.
3: Are you an elite? Are your staged attacks not going as planned? Are your globalist agendas failing because you're using subpar crisis actors? Well, then look no further. Hi, I'm Harrison Hanks. The ultimate crisis actor. Need a medical doctor? In 18 years as a medical examiner, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah.
2: Is this really
3: over the top? Is this really... Yeah, it's over the top. 33 children died. Do you need a grieving husband? Did a right winger set off a bomb? Well, yeah, we just knew about it. had a massive explosion. And I'm your man. Tired of melodramatic acting
2: there's light away from the darkness
1: I'm just trying to figure out if he's okay I lost my 20 year old but I had 20 years with my son it's just tragedy
3: horror and tragedy or maybe you need me to tone down my good acting to match your sorry lot of wannabes in that case I can go from this my name is Bobby Palmer. my family one of the families that lost a child To this. My name is Bobby Palmer. And my family is one of the families that lost a child. Going for the guns takes subtlety. Like this. I don't know how many more need to die before President Hustle. Not this.
2: <laughs> Please, could we do something with the assault weapons? And every one of those hands is a reason why those weapons should not be out in the general public.
4: Because
3: in this kind of a situation, what what has changed?
2: Have we learned nothing?
3: Tired of green screen mishaps and disappearing noses?
2: Me too. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to say?
3: I'm green screen ready, bonded, and insured. I can morph into a thousand different faces. I offer reasonable rates, and I have no conscience. Just pick your card to play on the world stage. From homeless to police officer. From doctor to witness. To your ace card, a grieving father. You can count on Harrison Hanks to push through your agenda. Regain their trust. Call Harrison Hanks for all your crisis needs. Thank you. And good
2: luck.
1: I think Harrison did a brilliant job there. And of course, we actually had footage of Gene Rosen from Sandy Hook. There is a Brilliant video out there uh, nailing David Wheeler, one of the who played two roles at Sandy Hook—one as a grieving father, another as a SWAT team member, marching up and down Dickinson Drive carrying an uh, 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 AR-15 upside down by the magazine. Uh, I used to supervise a recruit training with 15 DI's and 300 recruits under my command, including marksmanship. And I can assure you that the lowest-ranking private would not commit a blunder of the kind committed by David Wheeler on that occasion, which, of course, is such a tell that the YouTube had to take it down. We also have 9-11 anomalies, for example, at the Pentagon. The absence of airplane debris anywhere near the Pentagon uh, rather strongly suggests that no plane had crashed there. Well, we also have an aerodynamically impossible approach with a Boeing 757 traveling uh, at a speed that would have made it impossible to barely skim the ground as the government planes took place. Where well, you have the uh, CNN's best reporter on the scene at the time, Jamie McIntyre, reporting that there was no evidence of any plane having hit anywhere near the Pentagon based upon his close-up inspection. Here's a here's an image of the point of impact. And while there are a couple of automobiles there, two large spools of cable, uh chain link fence, there are uh, 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 unbroken windows, but no massy pile of debris from a 100-ton aluminum airliner, no wings, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, no tail, uh, it... it Turns out that a section of the building collapsed, but only about 45 minutes later, as Jamie McIntyre will report. Here we have one of my favorite photographs, the clear, green, unblemished Pentagon lawn. Obviously, had a plane crashed there. There would have been debris all over the place, but we can find many photographs like this that confirm that the lawn was clear, a green, spotless, immaculate, This even led Thierry Maison, who is an internationally recognized intellectual, to produce a video, a a website at the time called Hunt the Boeing, meaning giving a wide array of photographs. Look for wreckage of the sign of any Boeing having crashed there, and you won't find it. It turns out now, as Jamie McIntyre will explain,
2: Idea of how much of the plane actually impacted the building.
3: You know, it, it, it might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. The only site uh, is the actual uh, site of the building that's crashed in, and as I said, the only pieces left uh, that you can see are, are small enough that you could pick up in your hand. Uh, there are no large uh, tail sections, wing sections, uh, a fuselage, nothing like that anywhere around, which would indicate that the entire plane crashed into the side of the Pentagon uh, and then caused the side to collapse. Now, even though if you look at the pictures of the Pentagon, you see uh, that the floors have all collapsed. That didn't happen immediately. Uh, it wasn't until almost about 45 minutes later uh, that the structure was weakened enough that all of the floors collapsed.
1: Now, Jevons, it, now Jamie McIntyre was actually fired for that report uh, and later actually forced to... Uh, retract it, which he did in the following rather artful fashion. He said, only a fool would deny that a plane had hit the Pentagon, meaning he had been a fool to report the truth and the mistaken belief that that was his job and responsibility. And he subsequently, you know, left the news business, I think, finding the burden of supporting a disinformation or propaganda campaign too much to bear. Here's the official trajectory of the plane approaching uh, just barely skimming the ground at over 500 miles an hour, taking out a series of lampposts. Now, needless to observe, uh, by Newton's third law and the relativity of motion, a plane uh, traveling 500 miles an hour hitting stationary lampposts would have the same effect as if the plane had been stationary and hit by lampposts. Uh, traveling 500 miles an hour. They would have ripped open the wings where the fuel is stored. It would have mixed with oxygen, burst into flames. The plane would have cartwheeled across the lawn and left debris everywhere, which, as we already know, was not the case. Where I have had uh, discussions with aeronautical engineers who've observed, by the way, that the official trajectory is not even aerodynamically possible because of what is known as downdraft or ground effect. That, that plane, a Boeing 757 at the speed of over 500 miles an hour could not have got closer than 60 or even 80 feet to the ground, which is higher than the Pentagon at 71 feet is tall. So once again, we have, uh, you know, laws, cause and effect, crash leaves, crash debris, no debris, no crash, uh, aer- aerodynamics at a certain level. But uh, would require comporting with the laws of aerodynamics, uh, but we have an impossible trajectory, therefore the story we have been told here once again is a fantasy. But if you don't know enough, if you don't have the background, if you're not paying close attention, you may miss and be taken out, uh, taken in by the sound bites that you hear from the mainstream media without realizing that they're acting in concert. Parkland anomalies, the injured students. Students with AR-15 wounds that healed miraculously rapidly. Uh, Done using fake bullets. This is called simunition that stings like a bee. Uh, Rounds that are made out of beeswax and laundry detergent. Allison, I repeat her observation because we find confirmation here. It was like a movie set. It looked so real, but it felt so fake. Here we have a, a Maddie Wilford who's supposed to have been shot three times. Uh, uh she's very lucky, said uh, Dr. Nitschporenko. Uh, we're talking about large caliber bullets penetrating through the chest and abdomen. Those are serious injuries. And yet, she's not suffering any injury from penetration through her chest or abdomen. This is like a week later, where the doctor is absurdly reporting young people have a tendency to heal very fast. I mean, this is ludicrous. I mean, once again, we're talking about laws of physiology and recovery from injuries. Uh, This is reminiscent of a conversation uh, I had with Dr. Stan Monteith, himself an orthopedic surgeon, about the victims in Boston, because he noticed, for example, that Jeff Bauman turns up just 19 days later at a Boston Bruin game, and he's looking fine fit, very comfortable, missing his legs, waving a flag around enthusiastically, where Dr. Stan explained to me during our conversation on his show that he he has performed these kinds of amputations. It takes three months just to get used to not having your legs, another three months to get used to getting around without them. And here just 19 days later, we had a, a Jeff Bauman at a Boston Bruin game, enthusiastic, very comfortable with his missing legs. Well, here you have uh, Maddie Wilford getting around just fine from what obviously could not have been inflicted by an AR-15, where, in fact, the, the doctor was making an absurd o- observation and suggesting these were large caliber. The AR-15 only fires a .223 Remington round, which is only slightly larger than a twenty-two, But the immense damage that it inflicts is because of its high velocity. It rips and tears and does awful damage. Here we have yet another of the Sandy Hook students. This one, Samantha Fuentes. Amazingly, she was released from the hospital and is walking and being interviewed by reporters after only one week. And now her two legs only require band-aids for the AR-15 wounds. Again, this is completely absurd from a physiological point of view for anyone familiar with ballistics. Indeed, the New York Times even published an article about the traumatic impact of AR-15 bullets. Trauma surgeons tell us what it's really like to try to repair such devastating injuries. Bones are exploded, soft tissues is absolutely destroyed, one said. Perhaps no one knows the devastating wounds inflicted by assault-style rifles better than the trauma surgeons who struggle to repair them. The doctors say they are haunted by their experiences confraying injuries so dire They struggled to find words to describe them. Well, obviously, Maddie and Samantha weren't suffering traumatic injuries. And here we have yet another student who claimed to have been in Holocaust class when the shooting took place and to have deflected a bullet with a book. She even said it was a tiny book. Well, once again, this is completely absurd if we're talking about AR-15 ammunition, but It makes sense if, in fact, what we're dealing with is what's known as simunition, where the rounds, as I have mentioned, are made out of beeswax and laundry detergent, uh, which are designed to sting like a bee, properly used. They aren't going to penetrate the skin and aren't going to cause fatal injuries or even serious damage so that it appears you're going to get a little wart or welt or red spot, which is the kind of thing we had from Maddie and from Samantha, not to mention our our, our Holocaust-class girl deflecting around with a tiny book. This appears to be what was going on. Uh, we even had a teacher by the name of Stacy Whipple who said she saw the shooter who was in full metal garb, helmet, face mask, bulletproof armor, using... Uh, a gun of a kind she couldn't recognize. Now, I have multiple sources with a great deal of experience with armaments, especially among police officers, one of whom observed to me that it was probably a SIM gun, which fires a simulated ammunition, and that's why she didn't recognize the gun. In other words, this all becomes consistent, when we understand what's really going on, as opposed to the vast uh, array uh, of falsified or fake or misleading evidence with which we're being presented. 9-11 anomalies. The South Tower crashed. Once again, we get back to the laws of physics, engineering, uh, and aerodynamics. For example, we have an aerodynamically impossible approach with a Boeing 767. The planes that... It allegedly crashed in Sharksville in Pentagon were supposed to be seven fifty sevens in New York, North and South Tower both seven sixty sevens. We have violations of the laws of physics and of engineering at entry. No airplane debris beneath the facades of either of the towers. Once again you can infer from the absence of effects that certain causes did not were not present. Uh, just as you can tell from the absence of bona fide bullet wounds from an a- AR-15, that they weren't shot with an AR-15. Here you see one of many images of what's supposed to be Flight 175 approaching the South Tower. Now, it turns out pilots for 9-11 Truth, which is a, a society of professional and military pilots, uh, has performed uh, analyses and found that the trajectory The official approach of the 767 exceeded its stress specifications for that altitude uh, and speed, where they appear to have taken the cruising speed at 35,000 feet and simply assumed it could be attained at this lower level where the air is three times too dense. Uh, Instead, it turns out that because of its density, the turbines can't suck the air through the engines, and they begin functioning as brakes. John Lear has submitted an affidavit in relation to a 9-11 lawsuit explaining in meticulous detail how it would have been impossible for real planes to have performed the operations here against either of the towers. Uh, uh, We find, in addition, an impossible entry. Uh sometimes a plane, therefore, has been referred to as a, a, a ghost plane, or the towers is made of butter, so we get a butter plane. We're seeing an entry where there's no damage, no collision effects. Now, we know that when you have an interaction uh, between two materials, that the denser material prevails over the less dense, where steel is overwhelmingly more dense than aluminum. Why they make buildings out of steel rather than aluminum? Notice here, Flight 175 officially was intersecting with eight different floors of the South Tower, each of which consisted of a steel truss connected at one end to the core columns, at the other to the external steel support columns, which were massive in and of themselves and filled with four to eight inches of concrete. The variance, because the trusses had V-shaped grooves that were four inches deep, so in some places it would be four inches, others up to eight inches, 208 feet on a side, means that we're talking about an acre of concrete per floor. Uh, so the plane would have been intersecting with eight different floors of an acre of concrete on a steel truss, posing massive horizontal resistance, which would have led the, the plane to crumple external to the building, not pass effortlessly through. This is a sequence put together by Jack White, who is a legendary photo and film analyst with whom I did a lot of research on JFK, showing a sequence of the frames from one of the films, showing Flight 175 effortlessly disappearing into the building, uh, where Asa Baker has given us a depiction of what ought to have happened instead. The plane ought to have crumbled external to the building, with bodies, seats, luggage, parts falling to the ground. But we have reports, photographs of the ground, the roadway, and the sidewalk beneath both the north and the south facade, and it's not there. It's not there. Once again, uh, what's the probability uh, of uh, 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 planes having actually entered or hit the South Tower if it would have been physically impossible for them to enter if they would have crumpled external to the buildings and body seats, luggage, wings, tail fallen to the ground. When there are no body seats, luggage falling to the ground and no indications of any collision effects, we are witnessing once again a fantasy scenario propagated by the United States government because it was complicit in the event where Jack White discovered they had even planted an engine at the intersection of Church and Murray, which turns out to be an antiquated 767 engine, not then in use, in planes that purportedly hit the building, and where he discovered from Fox News footage that there was a white van in the vicinity and four or five guys wearing FBI vests unload a heavy object, and it would appear... Uh, uh, place it on the sidewalk, which is completely undamaged underneath a steel scaffolding with a canopy. Uh, mind you, if this engine had actually come at a high trajectory from having hit the South Tower, it would have done colossal damage to the, to the sidewalk and would have had, you know, ripped through the steel scaffolding. But that didn't happen. Notice they even left behind a dolly that they appear to have used in making the transit. How was it done? Well, there have been three theories about how it was done. Uh, where the, the, uh, one, that it was uh, computer, CGI, computer generated images advanced by Rosalie Grable, also known as the Web Ferry. Then Ace Baker suggests it was done by video compositing, by adding the images of the planes of the 17-second delay between the initial image and the broadcast, uh, both of which would be possible apart from the fact that we had hundreds of witnesses reporting seeing the plane in real time, which would not have occurred had it been done by CGI or video compositing, so that by an argument of el- by elimination, Since with CGI or video compositing, there would have been no image available in real time. It was not done using CGI or video compositing. Where it appears to have been done using a sophisticated airborne holographic projector. Notice the image here. This is from an Australian military manual. One plane projecting the image of another plane. Uh, Richard Hall of the UK has done brilliant work here with his Flight 175 3D radar study, where he went through a rather elaborate process to discover that there was actual radar data for a plane that was 1,200 feet to the right of the images we see in the videos, which he had reconstructed. Which makes sense, because a radar would pick up a real plane, uh, but not images being projected thereby, where the objection that the the, the then known holographic methods wouldn't allow for projecting onto uh, empty space have now been overcome by the revelation of a new form of technology uh, developed, no doubt, decades ago, because we're always in a lag time in relation to the most sophisticated abilities of our military, where you can project on the microscopic particles in the air that serve as a screen for the temporary projection of images which therefore appears to be exactly how it was done, and can explain the impossible speed that the projecting plane had to fly faster than a 767 could fly to maintain the integrity of the holographic image, the absence of collision effects because it was only the image of a plane that was entering the building, not a real plane, and why, of course, there was no debris or leftover, and they had to plant the engine. JFK anomalies. Witnesses, eyewitnesses, to a blowout of JFK's brains at the back of his head were discounted by X-rays that were produced by the government that purported not to show it. So we had uh, X-rays that turned out to have been patched to conceal the blowout. This is truly fascinating. You have witness after witness reporting observing the blowout of brains at Dealey Plaza or a major defect at the back of the head. About where your, you know, your fist would be if you doubled it up and put it at the back of your head with your right arm. That's where that blowout was located. Beverly Oliver, uh, Oliver Phil and Marilyn Willis and Hoffman were all witnesses in Dealey Plaza who observed it taking place. Maryland, uh, Beverly opposite the grassy knoll, Phil and Marilyn uh, 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 on the other side, Ed Hoffman on the bridge. Then we had doctor after doctor at Parkland, Robert McClellan, Paul Peters, Kenneth Saylor, Dr. Carrico, Richard Delaney, Charles Crenshaw, Ronald Jones, Nurse Aubrey Bell, all confirmed at Theron Ward, the justice of the peace, who was required to conduct an inquest, but denied because the Secret Service stole the body to get it under military control. Aubrey Reich, the ambulance driver, who helped to load the body, actually felt the defect when he was uh, helping to raise the body from uh, trauma room number one into the bronze ceremonial casket. Frank O'Neill, an FBI agent, who together with his colleague, uh, uh, Zuber were present at the autopsy. Gerald Custer, Paul O'Connor, Floyd Greeby, medical techs were at Bethesda, who confirmed the blowout at the back of the head. What well, was discounted on the basis of the fact that the lateral cranial X-ray, that is to say the X-ray of the skull taken from the right side, you see here on the left, didn't show it. But David W. Manick, M.D., Ph.D., uh, who, who used a technique from physics uh, to uh, uh, the X-ray, which he himself suspected that showed two slight contrasts between, two great contrasts between dark and white, to have been real and discovered there was an area identified here as area P that had been patched with a material that was much too dense to be human bone. So that Mandick did this brilliant work already in late to 1992, and, and where when you I would eventually, in my studies of the Zapruder film, discover that you can actually see the blowout in later frames, in particular here at frame 374, that peak part, by the way, is a, a, a section of the skull that was blown out when he was hit in the right temple by a frangible or exploding bullet that set up shock waves that blew his brain out the back of his head, as so many witnesses reported. That's the bluish gray area. Remember how they refer to brains as gray matter? And look how closely it corresponds to area P and Mantics research on the x-rays, although there's hair that extends down slightly over the defect. But obviously, it's a very close approximation. And here you can see how they blacked out the back of his head. Here on the lower left, after the blowout, above they blacked it out just so it would look consistent. But look at the right. What this means is the Zapruder film itself isn't even internally consistent. There are many, many other anomalies here with the Zapruder film, which they had to edit massively because it would have given... Too much evidence of the fact that, uh, you know, the actual causes of death and complicity of the Secret Service in setting it up. So they had to edit it out. Other JFK anomalies, are what we were told versus how it was done. Officially, there were three shots scoring two hits, back of the neck, back of the head. Actually, there were at least four hits, the back, the throat, and two to the head. There were six or more shooters who fired eight to ten shots at a minimum. Here you see the very familiar diagram of this uh, alleged shooter in the sixth floor firing three shots with a man-licker Carcano, which, by the way, is among the worst weapons ever devised by the hand of man. It was an obscure World War II carbine manufactured by the Italians known as the humanitarian rifle for never actually harming anyone on purpose. Now, the original report of the Secret Service and the FBI was three shots with three hits. The Jack had been hit in the back, that Connolly had been hit in the back, and the Jack had been hit in the back of the head, killing him. But it turned out that one shot w- later w- was discovered to have missed and injured a distant bystander. And because the government had committed itself to only three shots having been fired, they had to subtract one and do it all with two which led to redescribing the wound to the back from its actual location, five and a half inches below the collar, just on the right of the spinal column, to the base of the back of the neck, in our, and then claiming that bullet had gone through the neck, accounting for the entry wound in the throat into the back of John Conley, to have a, a truly magic bullet to account for all these wounds. But if you were paying attention to the television coverage the day of 22 November, 1963, if you were watching, for example, NBC, you would have seen Chet Huntley on the left, who with David Brinkley would become two of the most famous newsmen of their era, reporting in real time reports coming from, from Parkland Hospital and, and a press conference that was conducted by Malcolm Perry MD, who'd performed a simple tracheostomy through the small puncture wound in JFK's throat, which he described three times during the Parkland press conference as a wound of entry that the bullet was coming at him, where, on NBC, you can find them reporting that there was a wound of entry that the bullet was coming at him to the throat, reported by Malcolm Perry, which they got on the air. They also reported uh, that the president had been hit in the right temple by a bullet that had exited the back of his head, uh, attributed to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal physician. This was widely broadcast on radio and television the day of the assassination, so that later on in the evening, uh, when the story started to trickle in that the gunman had been above and behind, Frank McGee, who was nobody's fool, said, this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? Which, of course, was a problem with which the Warren Commission had to wrestle. But you can see the actual minimum of four shots that JFK endured here, where he was indeed hit in the back by a shot fired from the top of the county records building, then shot in the throat by a bullet fired from inside the triple underpass. Then he was hit after the driver, William Greer, pulled the limousine to the left and to a halt. In the back of the head, Maya shot from the Dow tax. And then in the right temple after Jackie eased him back up, Maya shot fired from the intersection of the triple underpass of the picket fence. So the actual assassination looked a whole lot like this. There were other shots that were fired and missed. Uh, <coughs> in particular, there appears to have been a second shot from the top of the county records building, shown in green, that missed and, and created a streak in the ground near near a, a sewer opening there in the grass. Uh, there were actually three shots from the Daltex Those are the ones in yellow, uh, one of which missed and hit the distant Kirby. It's a near miss when you realize the point of origin uh, uh, where it injured that distant bystander, but another that missed and hit the grome strip over the limousine. Uh, We had yet another, the red, from the Grassy Knoll, where the shooter was in the best position, but it would have injured Jackie, so he had to pull his shot, and it wound up in the grass where a lieutenant picked it up. And then we have several shots that were fired. Those are in the orange from the book depository, but from the opposite side uh, where the assassin's lair was alleged to have occurred, from which no shots were fired. These were multiple shots fired at and John Connolly in the mistaken beliefs that it was Ralph Yarborough, uh, a liberal Texas senator uh, that LBJ despised. In fact, he and Jack had a huge argument that morning wanting to get uh, Connolly out in Yarborough Inn, which Jack overrode on the ground that the chief, the, the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States. It was too late to get the word out to the shooters, and Connolly, as a consequence, was shot which obfuscated the politics. They had to massively redo the the film. They took out what I estimate to be a a, a 100 trains turning from Houston on to Elm. Notice, boom, all of a sudden it's there because the driver swerved out too widely, nearly hit a concrete abutment, had to back pause, which would have shaken the public's confidence. Notice how you don't see the bottom half of of the vehicle. This suggests to me that part of this footage was actually filmed using a tripod, because if you're on a handheld camera, uh, you're going to follow the limousine. Notice the virtually motionless spectators in the foreground. Uh, that's completely contrary to the enthusiastic behavior displayed elsewhere on the motorcade, leading us to infer that, in fact, that was uh, taken earlier when the pilot car passed. There was no one to wave and cheer about. Uh, because of the, the limo stop that took place uh, and endured for a substantial period of time, I used to think it was only a couple of seconds, but you had many activities taking place. You had Officer Hargis riding to the left, rear, dismounting his bike, running between the vehicles up to the grassy knoll. Uh, Officer Jackson on the right, motoring up the grassy knoll till his bike falls over. He proceeds on foot, five agents dismounting. The Secret Service limousine surrounding the presidential, one taking a, a piece of skull from a little boy and throwing it into the back seat. Uh, meanwhile, you had Clint Hill rushing forward to push Jackie back into the vehicle and lie down where he was the first to observe what was reported even in the Kennedy Detail, a book about the Secret Service in Dallas, a gaping fist-sized hole at the back of his head, which he knew to be mortal So he turned and gave his colleagues a thumbs down. All of that had to be excised uh, in order to give a sanitized version of the film that would be more consistent with the official account, even though it has oddities about it. They're nothing as extraordinary as would have been the case with the original. More Sandy Hook anomalies. The forensic analysis was a failure. There are no fingerprints on the 22 rifle that's supposed to have been used by Adam Lanza to shoot his mother. They couldn't match any of the 150 slugs in the classroom to any specific AR-15 weapon. The only death certificate we have has turned out to be a fabrication. Frankly, these are all massive uh, indictments of what took place at Sandy Hook as a fabrication. We have the report of the state's attorney for Danbury a uh, uh, Steven Zidinsky, uh reporting uh, uh, that the official giving us an official account it took him a year to compose, but it's easy to demonstrate the official report authored by him does not establish a causal nexus between the shooter, his victims, and the weapons he's alleged to have used. It suffers from the shortcoming of concluding there were no fingerprints on the twenty two caliber rifle allegedly to shoot his mother. Even more surprisingly, that the large number of shots fired from the five five six caliber Bush mass are close to 150. None of the bullet fragments could be matched to the weapon. Under these circumstances, it would have been impossible for the alleged shooter, Adam Lanza, to have been convicted in a properly conducted court of law for his alleged offense, because no causal nexus was established between the purported shooter, his weapons, and the 20 children and 7 adults he's supposed to have killed which one might have naively supposed to have been the point of the investigation. But if that was its goal, its objective was not achieved. If there's ever been such an abysmal failure in the annals of forensic investigation, I would love to hear about it. This is absurd. We had all kinds of extraordinary events going on. People say, well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well the final report from the Connecticut authorities does include the names, the ages, or the sex of the alleged victims. That's extraordinary. A clerk of Newtown entered into secret negotiation with the state legislature to avoid releasing their death certificates. That is extraordinary. Uh, Connecticut State's attorney Stephen Sedensky opposed the release of the 911 calls and had to be denied withholding them by the court. That is extraordinary. A special panel of the state legislature recommended that state employees who release information about Sandy, Sandy Hook be subjected to an e-felony. That is extraordinary. Those who were involved in the demolition of the school building itself are required to sign lifetime gag orders about anything they saw or did not see, which I submit would have included no blood on the floor, no pockmarks in the walls. This is all extraordinary. Uh, What good reason could there possibly be to withhold the names, ages, and sex of the deceased from the final report? The claim was made it was to spare the feelings of the parents, but think about it, their parents already knew they were dead, or so we were led to believe. Here's the only death certificate we have in our possession. It it was given by Lenny Posner, who purports to be the father of Noah, uh, the most uh, uh, notorious of all the Sandy Hook. Children, because he not only died in Newtown on 14 December 2012, but again in Pakistan on 16 December 2014. And where Kelly Watt, who had 100 hours of conversation with him, telling him she didn't believe a word he said, didn't believe he had a son, didn't believe he died there, uh, asked for proof. He sent her inadvisedly, no doubt, a death certificate. That's a fabrication. It's the bottom half of a reel. Notice a difference in the texture. It's very blatant, the top half of a fake, which doesn't include a file number, has a wrong estimated time of death at 11 a.m., when the shooting took place between 9.35 and 9.40. I mean, think about it. If, if Lenny Posner actually had a son, Noah, who had actually died at Sandy Hook, he would have had a real death certificate to present, not a fake one. Other Sandy Hook anomalies, it was a FEMA drill for gun control violations of standard procedure, no EMTs, no ambulances, more. Parents weren't even allowed to see the bodies of their children. They were identified using photographs, which turns out to be appropriate because that was the only form in which they existed. Here we have you know, a summary of the events that show you know, what we can substantiate from all the mixed reporting that was coming from Sandy Hook that day. We have a sign everyone must check in. Boxes of bottled water and pizza at the firehouse, porta potties present from scratch, many wearing name tags on lanyards, parents bringing children to the scene. No parent would bring their child to the scene of a child shooting massacre. It-, it turns out we actually have the FEMA manual, and it says right in the manual everyone must check in. Uh, it's a standard part of FEMA uh, exercises that they provide restrooms and refreshments, hence a bottled water, pizza, porta-potties. And, of course, they identified the players using name tags on lanyards. Proof on the, that was going on on the 13th. Proof it wasn't a massacre was also there. No surge of EMTs into the building. No medevac helicopter was called. No string of ambulances to the school. No evacuation of 469 other students. Nobody's placed on the triage tarps. Aiden used a fake photograph that was staged in advance, uh, taken by Shannon Hicks, and was sent worldwide on the left, but you would taken an earlier photograph on the right where they actually re- stopped to rearrange the kids. Here's a part from the FEMA manual where everyone uh, must sign in with a controller upon arrival. It has the right start and stop dates. We have nailed this. Here's that very photograph I was talking about. The bottom one was taken earlier. You got a little girl in a pink sweater and a short skirt in the front of the line. Uh, But she was replaced by a little boy in a dark sweater and blue jeans, as you can see at the top. They rearranged the kids. If you look in between on the bottom photograph, notice the parents present. What are parents doing there during this shooting massacre? This is supposed to be an emergency evacuation. Who would have paused during a shooting emergency to call parents to get down there? And notice they're very casual. They have their hands in their pockets or arms crossed, casually looking in. Look in between boy number one and boy number two in the bottom photograph, and you see a couple of parents just casually looking on, which has led me to characterize this photograph as lounging at the massacre. All totally fraudulent. Kelly Watt, the same Kelly Watt to whom... Uh, uh, Lenny Posker sent a uh, fabricated death certificate, uh, observed that there appeared to be a striking resemblance between the young Noah at the top left and Michael Vabner, who is purported to be his older stepbrother. Uh, and, you know, we, we looked at this and we found that Kelly had it right. Where six of us who participated. We found he had the same ears. Uh, we had the same eyes. He had the same eyebrows that same shape and size of skull. Here's a nice gift that was prepared by Larry Rivera, where you can see Noah Posner turned into Michael Vabner. That's how they did it. That's why the parents weren't allowed to see the bodies. That's why they were identified using photographs. There were no bodies, and they only existed in the form of photographs of older children at a younger age. And look at this. Wilking Halbig has... Authentic Ray, this photograph of eight of the Sandy Hook girls looking real perky, uh, very alive, well, and flourishing, juxtaposed with their photographs as among the decedents at Sandy Hook. I mean, it's embarrassing that it is this bad, it is this insulting, as how they seek to perpetrate trods on the American people. Boston bombing players, how the Patsies were framed. There were Kraft International personnel on the scene who planted the bombs. The Serenov brothers were photoshopped into the video footage. But they committed a blunder. The backpacks don't match. Where an amicus curi brief has been accepted by the uh, First Circuit Court of of Appeals, which is reviewing the death sentence issued to Zoker. Here we see Zoker and his older brother Tamerlan, it was his Aunt Marette who explained to me that she knew this was Photoshop image because Tamerlin had a beard. And I asked her, could she prove it? And she sent me photograph after photograph, link after link. Here's an example, Tamerlin lying in bed with his cat. He has a beard. Here are the Kraft International personnel. If you notice, they have khaki trousers, black jackets, black baseball caps with a skull insignia, where the motto of Kraft is, violence does solve problems you got two in the left, one wearing a black nylon backpack with a white square on it. Well, guess what? Here you see him rushing away from the location where he'd arrived with a colleague, now no longer wearing the back, black nylon backpack with a white square. Here's where they Photoshop in uh, Zoker in the foreground in Tamerlan. Zoker, notice, is wearing a silver backpack. Tamerlan is wearing a dark backpack, but it's large and not of the kind that exploded. So here you have a juxtaposition of the black nylon backpack that exploded, with Tamerlan wearing the silver backpack, as uh, John Remington Graham, who's a retired professor of law, has observed. uh, Since the backpacks don't match, there wasn't even probable cause for an arrest, much less an indictment and a conviction at trial. So we have submitted an amicus curiae brief to the court, which it has accepted. According to Professor Graham, for the first time in history, uh, and uh, uh, that it will now inevitably, as the wheels of justice grind slowly but very fine, uh, lead to a reversal in the indictment and exposure of the whole charade. But there were key Boston players who who, who knew that these young men were being framed, yet police on bullhorns calling out, this is a drill, this is a drill. You had the Boston Globe tweeting that a demonstration bomb would be set off. You had Judy Clark, the Zoker's defense attorney, although formally pleading not him not guilty, declared they did it in her opening statement so that it wasn't necessary for the jury to determine whether or not there was sufficient evidence to find them guilty of the crime. Their own defense counsel, in this case Zoker's, acknowledged it. We have the video where you can actually hear in the background the police calling up on a bullhorn, telling everyone, this is a drill, this is a drill. We have the Boston Globe tweeting, breaking news. Police will have a controlled demolition on the 600 block on Boylston. Uh, Another, there will be a controlled explosion opposite the library within one minute as part of bomb squad activities. And then, of course, you have the explosion taking place, which we've already reviewed. Part of the evidence used to convict Zoker was a confession. You see on the right that he's alleged to have written on the inside of the curved surface of a fiberglass boat in which he was apprehended. Uh, uh, But I dare say no one would have been capable of this feat, not even Leonardo. The lines are perfectly evenly spaced, and it requires a special implement to write on fiberglass. Does anyone believe that Zoker in his effort to elude the police network uh, 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 for a crime he did not commit, just happened to have this fiberglass implement with him. I mean, it's simply absurd. And here we have Judy Clark, who, by in terms of her obligations as an attorney with respect to uh, uh, trial conduct, uh, should employ for the purpose of maintaining the cause confined to the member, such means only as are consistent with truth. But she said they did it, which was a falsehood, not consistent with truth and easily proven. Shall not seek to mislead lead the judge, judicial office, or a jury by an artifice or false statement of fact or law. All of this shows that she's a disgrace a disgrace to the to the law and in my opinion deserves to be disbarred. And it appears this may not be the only case in which Judy Clark was used as a cleanup matter for a dirty case run by the government. Charlottesville anomalies as well. We had two cars plus two drivers plus two takes, equaling totally fake. Two cars, both Dodge Challengers, one with a black stripe, one without. Two drivers, the age 20 patsy who is said to be schizophrenic, the actual driver, age 32, a military veteran. Two takes, one with one car, no van, another with one car, two vans. There's even a third, as I'm going to explain. Here are the two vehicles, the two charged challengers. One has a black stripe, the other does not. One has a sunroof, the other does not. Here are the two different drivers, the, the, the two parties. The bottom right with a glass is the purported uh, 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 driver who's actually the Patsy. Above him, a 32-year-old Army veteran who actually was driving the car. Look at the image we have from the video it's clearly the fellow at the top, not the fellow at the bottom, who's, by the way, quite a remarkable driver, who backed the car out from the crash with a skill of, of, of a NASCAR driver. Here, Here's one of the crashes where the vehicle crashes into two vehicles which had been parked there with no drivers. They didn't want them to suffer from whiplash or strain their neck. Uh, and, and he immediately backed right out. Here's yet another. Notice on the left, there's no vehicles around. He's not crashing into other cars, so we got two takes here. Uh, uh, and and it appears there was yet another, because this is a photograph that appeared in the New York Times. Notice now there's a black Toyota pickup. That's yet a third. So you got the single car alone. You have the car driving into two vehicles that have been parked there in advance with no drivers. That's a second now you have a third, which is clearly Photoshopped, because you see these bodies flying through the air while well, they weren't there at the time it happened. This is embarrassingly bad. And, it, and that's not the least of the shenanigans in relation to Charlottesville. We had a report in the, uh, an official review by Timothy Heatfeet that two Virginia State troopers were killed that afternoon during a crash of the helicopter they were using to conduct surveillance related to the events taking place in Charlottesville. This is especially striking because he cites a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board released on 5 September 2017 that does not identify the cause of the crash but confirms that Lieutenant Cullen and Trooper Pilot Bates were both killed in the crash. And you can see below I'm giving you a part of this uh, report. That's pretty damn interesting because it turns out we have photographs of the troopers departing the scene of the crash, wearing their flight uniforms and very much alive. That the NTSB should be participating in this event does not surprise me, since they covered up the causes of the death of Senator Paul Wellstone, his wife, daughter, and three aides, and their two pilots, on 25 October 2002, as John Costella, Ph.D., and I explained in the NTS failed Wellstone, published by Michael Rupert in his news newsletter. So we have proven that government agencies are participants in these events to promote a political agenda or cover up crimes. Notice the photographs of the two troopers in the lower left. Well, see here, you see the two troopers actually alive and well, still in their flight uniforms from the crash. And here we have video where you can actually watch yourself as the troopers walk away from the crash. Do a quick
4: site. video here because um, I've been looking into this whole false flag,
1: Charlottesville, Virginia thing,
4: with the car ramming into the people at the uh, Antifa rally. Now they're blaming it on white nationalists. So they're trying to cause the divide now because their Russia and Korean narratives aren't working. But yet, here's the weird thing. And they reported that, that Jay Cullen, Lieutenant J. Cullen, and this uh, trooper pilot... Burke Bates, killed in that helicopter crash. Okay. There it is right there on Twitter. Here it is in the Times. Okay. They were killed. But who are these two people in the picture? Why are they wearing flight suits? And why does this guy have a helmet? Who are they? These guys, then they don't look like them. There is a resemblance, though. Both bald, one maybe chubbier than the other one. Here's a video from AP. There they are again. Kind of have a, a somewhat resemblance to these guys. This one kind of looks like this one, this one being this one, like the chubbier one, but not exactly. Remember, this is a PSYOP. Okay, no one was, I don't think anybody was killed, personally.
1: Well, while he so may be skeptical guys? about the, uh, about the, whether they're the they same actors. person, I personally am not. They are the same person. And here's a topper if you want one. I mean, remember, the earlier formal photographs were taken, no doubt, years before. Those are the same guys. They were from the chopper which did crash, but they were not killed. Here's a topper, the mother of the alleged victim, Heather Heyer, who is supposed to be killed during the car crash, but actually, it turns out, died the following day from a heart attack. Have we not seen this woman before? Please compare with this Sandy Hook mother. We let the two images overlap each other and change the transparency, and it's a perfect match. So it seems that Susan Brow, the mother of Heather Heyer, and Donna Soto, the mother of a teacher at Sandy Hook, is indeed one and the same crisis actor. I, I, I want to take this uh, opportunity for a, a break here and, 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 and pause in, in the recording, uh, where I shall return for part two of how to spot a false flag uh, on my next take.
0: Subscribe to the D2R Podcast Network on iTunes and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search D2R Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the D2R Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, do you do shopping online? Well, do us a favor and go to D2RPN.com and click our Amazon banner and help out the network. It's going to cost you nothing extra. We get a percentage back from everything that you buy. And uh, you know what? That would be a win, win, win. It's a win for you, win for the network, and win for Amazon. Um, great prices, uh, everyday savings, and uh, you get what you want, and you're helping us out. So this is kind of like donating, but you get something out of it. It's great. Um, so go do it, d2rpn.com. Uh, there's banners everywhere on the website. Thanks for your support. Hey fellas. Does your beard itch does your beard not grow in all the way? Go to phoenixbeardoils.com dot com today. We've got great
1: beard oils with sensual love. We also include the emotional healing properties and the aromatherapy information with each scent. Go to phoenixbeardoils.com dot com today and give someone the bird.